Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ephesians, from chapter 2 and chapter 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, and spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Is this okay? All right, I don't know how much amplification, but I'll try to make sure I project. Um, before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we have just sung that to you all hearts are open. Uh, to you no secrets are hidden. You know us fully. And you know right now what we need, how... Um, how deeply we need to grow in Christ. And so, Father, we ask um, that as we explore your word together, as we reflect on it, that you would nourish our soul, that you would convince our hearts of what is real, that we would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are now in our second to last week of this revision series, this series that is kind of devoted to thinking about in this kind of new phase for our church, what are we called to, who are we meant to be? And since we're coming near to an end, it probably se it seems to me like it might be a good idea just to kind of to recap. This whole series is kind of founded on three basic ideas. The first is that our world is sick, and that's something I think I don't need to convince us of. We're feeling that keenly, painfully right now. The second is that the ancient gospel is where the solution to our sickness is to be found. That the death and resurrection of Jesus has started something new. He has brought a kind of new creation, a new power at work that offers the solution to all that is broken in this world. And the third thing that we have been saying is that this power of Jesus that has worked through the gospel is at work in the church. 
So we've been talking, for example, about how right now it seems like there's this societal breakdown. There is a lack of trust um, where there's just everything is so tribal and you're my enemy if you don't completely agree with me. And there's this sense of isolation as both technology and this quest for autonomy pull us further and further apart and people are just alone. And Jesus comes in and with his resurrection power, he, he knits together a new community, not one based on being like other people, but based on Jesus, where there is a depth of love within diversity, where there is a hospitality to those who are different from us. Jesus is bringing a healing to our brokenness. He is reweaving the social fabric that has been ripped. Or we've been talking about how there is this kind of sense of of aimlessness, even despair. We're told right now in our culture that, that there's no such thing really as beauty. It's just kind of subjective, that, that goodness is all relative, and that truth is just a social construct. And if that's true, if there is no beauty, goodness, or truth, how in the world are we supposed to figure out how to live our lives? If we want to make our lives beautiful and good, and there is no such thing, what does that mean? It leaves us aimless. And you compound that with the fact that we are told in so many different ways that, that real moral growth isn't possible. That anyone who looks virtuous is just putting on a show. And if you see beneath that, you see that there's nothing but self-interest. And so, so when we are wanting to make something of our life, we're filled with a sense of aimlessness and despair. And then Jesus comes in and he takes people and he... He brings us into the freedom of worship that is beautiful and is good. And he works in, by his spirit within us to renew us and begin to change us and make us holy. The, the cure for what ails the world is found in this resurrection power of Jesus. That's what we've been focusing on over the last few weeks. And this morning I want to add just one more piece to this. There is, I think, at times, a subtle mistake that churches make as they're even reflecting on these truths. And that is that all of these gifts that are so good, that are so needed, these gifts are not just found in the church, but are oftentimes, I think, by people seen to be just for the church. That hospitality, that community are things that we share between each other, that that discipleship and worship are things that we experience amongst each other. And yes, we do experience this amongst each other, but, but what Scripture says and what we see in our passage this morning is that when Jesus just pours out his goodness upon us, it is so that we could give. These gifts that are given to us are meant to be shared with the world. If there's one verse that our passage, I mean, that, our, that this morning is focused on, it's that last verse in our first passage. You might be familiar with Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. It's one of the most well-known New Testament passages. And that last verse, I just want to consider it for a moment. We are his workmanship, we're told. Individually, when we have placed our faith in Jesus, God recreated us. But it's not just talking about us individually. It's, it's us as a community. We are God's masterpiece. He's, he's made something new out of us. That's what happens with salvation. But, but notice that when he recreates us, when he makes us into something new, he gives us a very specific purpose. It says, we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is what our new purpose that he's given us, that is our calling as a church. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, what does that mean? I don't know how you feel when you hear the good works, those words, good works. To me, there's something about it cold and almost self-righteous, like good works. I mean, like, you know, like it doesn't feel warm, does it? Um, but really, the, the idea of, of good works, it is the idea of seeking to bring about what is right and what is beautiful and what is loving in the world. This is saying that our, our purpose as a community, as we are recreated in Christ, is together to bring about what is good and beautiful and right in this world. As Jesus pours out his goodness upon us and we are recreated, we are created in Christ Jesus to bring these good works of love and beauty and righteousness and all of these things to the world around us. That is our calling. And that truth is actually so fundamental to what this passage is saying, what the gospel says, that I would say if we don't realize that, if we don't have space for this, we don't understand what the church is about. In fact, I would say we don't even understand what our salvation is about. To, to explain why I say that, let, let me just back up and talk about how central this is to how we are saved. So the first 10 verses, lead, sorry, the first nine verses leading up to verse 10 speaks about what Jesus has done for us. And it begins by describing our spiritual condition, humanity's spiritual condition apart from Christ. It says, you were dead. Not very optimistic. And in case Paul feels like we might have missed that point, you might notice the second passage describes us in a very similar way. You were dead. Darkness. Do you know what a black hole is? Uh, to me, it, I, I, there's just something cool about black holes. It's very sci-fi, but the thing is they're actually real if you don't know what it is. When a star dies and it collapses in upon itself, it creates a black hole where it's very, very small in terms of the actual mass, but it's so high in mass that the gravitational pull is just astronomic. It is, the gravity is so strong that even light can't escape. It's just constantly pulling and pulling and pulling, and you can't fill a black hole. In fact, the more that's thrown at it, just the bigger and denser and stronger it becomes. It's like this endless, insatiable pull. And there is a real sense, Scripture says, that, that the human condition, that sin has killed the soul. When our souls died, they have collapsed in on themselves, and there is within us at our very core a spiritual black hole where there is this sense of want and this sense of need that can never be filled. If you continue on in the passage, it talks about how in your previous way you were following your passions, the desires of your flesh and of your mind. Chapter 4 will say something similar. It'll say that we continue to give ourselves over to our insatiable desires. They can never be satisfied. They manifest themselves in different ways, whether it's sexual satisfaction, whether it's greed, whether it is wanting other people's approval. There is this desire, and we want, and we want, and we want, and no matter what we take in, it never fills us, because 
there is this spiritual black hole of darkness and death. Now, perhaps it sounds more of a bleak description than is warranted about the human condition. And it is not the only thing the Bible says of us. The Bible says we were made in God's image. The Bible says that God's grace continues to be at work in this world, enabling us at times to resist this pull. People, no matter what they believe, are capable of remarkable acts of kindness and beauty. And yet... When we stop to think about it, if we just look at what we see about the human condition, we recognize there is a truth to this. Just think about what we have seen even in the past year as people are feeling threatened, how they have responded. Or take another example, which I find fascinating. There's this book um, called Shantung Compound by Langdon Gilkey. He was a writer in the 20th century. He was originally a secular humanist who was teaching English in China during right when World War II happened and Japan overran China. And so he found himself, along with 2,000 other Westerners, most of them highly educated, wealthy, in a concentration camp. 2,000 people in small rooms of 10 people per room it wasn't great. It was not fun. It, there was enough food for them to continue. And at first, Gilkey talks. Gilkey, who, being a humanist, believed in the power of rationality to overcome problems, talked about how people were rational. They were acting rightly. They were working together, and things were going well. And then things began to degrade. You had one room where maybe 11 people were bunking up and another one with nine, and so someone would intervene and say, hey, would you mind if we move one over to the other? And it's like, no, why would we do that? We're pretty happy with nine, thank you very much. There were first annual American Red Cross packets with all sorts of goods. The American said, mine, not anyone else's. There was no sharing, and Gilkey was getting frustrated because like, if only we would be willing to give up a little bit, everyone would be in a better condition. And yet, what he was realizing after week after week is that what he thought was true generosity was only when people were comfortable. He writes, the fundamental bent of the total self in all of us was inward toward our own welfare. Some power within seems to drive us to promote our own interests against those of our neighbors. We were not to love others because the will did not really want us to. Do you hear that? He's, he's realizing there's this gravitational pull in each person that, that resists ultimately love because we want, we want, and we will never fill our want. Scripture says you were dead, you were darkness. And what our passages tell us is that the gospel of Jesus is all about this being completely reversed. So after it says, you were dead, a few verses later, but God made you alive in Christ Jesus. Or you might notice in chapter 5, you were once darkness, but now, not just you are in the light, but now you are light. It's, it's a complete reversal. It's, it's saying that when we have placed our faith in Jesus, Jesus turns everything upside down within us. Where once there was a black hole, he removes that black hole, and instead he turns us outwards. If you want to stay within the metaphor, now instead of a black hole, it's like there's this little sun that is starting to, to shine light and warmth. 
Or, or if that seems strange, Paul actually mixes metaphors and he, and he speaks about fruit. Imagine a tree that is just overflowing with fruit. He speaks of once you were darkness and the darkness is fruitless, but now you are light in the Lord and there's fruit. Because think of sunlight bringing fruit to trees. But however, whichever metaphor we want to use, the point is that, that a shift has taken place. That at the very heart of who we were before was this sense of scarcity, the sense of need, the sense of protection, this black hole of death and darkness. And now there is something different that moves outwards, where now there is this, this new force of the spirit in, in generosity, in love, in giving. And this is why he concludes at the end of chapter 2, verse, I mean, two verse 10, You've been recreated for good works. Your reality is no longer need, need. Your reality is one of abundance, of giving. This is why I'm saying if we don't understand this, we don't understand salvation. Because at the very core of salvation is this change in us. If we don't understand this, we don't understand the church. Because the church is meant to be something that is a source of good in the world. Imagine if we can think of it like in the nighttime and it's cold and dark and people are just cold in the darkness and then there's this bonfire that people can gather around and experience warmth and light. That's what the church is meant to be. Or, or a community where there's hunger but there's in the very middle of it this orchard that's a community orchard that everyone can come and enjoy fruit that gives them energy and hope and life. That's what the church is meant to be. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. That is our calling. And in fact, it's not just our calling. It's not just our responsibility. It's also our joy. There is this place in Acts where Jesus says, it is better to give than to receive. You've probably heard it, probably heard it multiple times without even thinking about it. But just think about how opposite that is to everything we've ever heard in every marketing pitch where you want to receive. Life is better if you receive. And Jesus is like, no, it's actually better when you are a person who is able to give. We are more human. We are more joyful. We are more whole when we are people who are able, rather than protecting, to give. That is who we're called to be. Now, perhaps you're thinking, as, as I've been thinking about over this week, that there is something about this that still feels a little bit off. Because if we're honest, when we think about churches, we realize that's oftentimes not how churches look. And actually, if we're really honest, we'll say if we think about ourselves, that's often not how we are. And the Bible is also very transparent about this. It explains that even as we are changed by Jesus, there is, there is this kind of remnant, these patterns, these habits that it takes us an entire lifetime to grow out of. So I've heard if someone loses a limb, loses a hand, or loses an arm, even after that arm is no longer there, for the rest of their life, they will still sometimes feel things as if it's something there. It's like something is kind of programmed into the brain where they still think they have something even though it's gone. And there is a sense that even as Jesus has done this transplant within us, we still are confused into thinking that we are in a situation of scarcity. 
we still are confused into thinking that what our job needs to be is to protect ourselves, to hold on to things. We still feel like we don't have much energy, we don't have much strength, we don't have much time, we don't have many resources, and so we just need to protect. And you can see that actually within churches too. It is in our day not uncommon for churches to speak of kind of like a culture war where there's this sense where it's us against the world around us. And what that is, that's a response of fear, right? A response of anxiety, a response of feeling like we have to protect. It is not the response of Jesus. Jesus never reacts to people around him out of fear and self-protection. It is a response of still thinking that we need to hold on, where we need to put walls against the world rather than offering ourselves for the world. We, we still very naturally fall into this pattern of thinking that life is about protecting. It's about holding on. We, we have this attitude of scarcity when actually our reality is an attitude. Our reality is a reality of abundance. And this is why actually in Ephesians, even as Paul is telling us, repeatedly he prays one simple thing, that we would come to grasp just how rich we actually are. So right before, in Ephesians 2, right before there's this prayer, and, and Paul's prayer is, my prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, which I, I love that idea. The eyes of our heart, we kind of probably know, we're talking about something experiential, like at our emotional core. We might understand sometimes with our brain, but it's something else altogether to actually understand at the depth of who we are, at our emotional self, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know the hope that we now have in Jesus, that we would realize the power that is at work in us, and that we would realize the riches of our inheritance. Paul prays that our hearts would grasp that we are wealthy. And then right after he prays these things, he goes on to this passage, chapter 2. And, and this chapter is, is in many ways meant to convince our hearts of the reality of we are wealthy. I've noticed actually in Ephesians how often Paul seems to want to talk about wealth. Especially he talks about God being wealthy, which is kind of a strange idea. But perhaps you even notice here in verse 4 it says, But God being rich, rich in mercy, he, he has, he's just like, filled with mercy. He can spend it and spend it and never run out. He is just wealthy with mercy. And that's the core of our hope. I've been thinking about this because there's something very humbling about this idea. I don't like to ask people for help. I don't know if you're different. I'm generally okay if I ask people for help when it's a friend, because there's kind of this tacit agreement that if I ask you for help right now, you can also know that whenever you need help from me, I will be there. There's kind of this almost quid pro quo. But have you ever needed help from someone that you've been an absolute jerk to? Not a fun situation. And that's the situation that's being described here. I mean, in our sinful condition, the, our natural way of treating God is to either ignore him or to use him. And yet, what do we have here? God 
being rich in mercy because we need God. There is no other hope for us but God. God being rich in mercy just spends and spends it on us. And, and he sees us in our death while we are still enemies, while we're turned from him, and he lifts us up to himself. And it says he makes us alive through Christ Jesus. And, and why does he do this? So we talk about salvation, and sometimes people say, I want to know the will of God for my life. What's the will of God for my life? Well, well listen to the verse 7, what the will of God for your life is. It says, after it says, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches. There's that riches idea again. So that he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's such a dense sentence, and it is so profound. He wants forever to keep pouring out his riches upon us in his kindness. So that every day as we wake up and we see all that we've been given, we say, this is just too much God, and God gives us more. And the next day as we wake up and we experience the beauty and the kindness of God, and we're just overwhelmed, and God gives us more. That's his desire for us forever. And even now, he is desiring by his spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to begin to realize, you, if you've been saved through Christ, you are children of the richest person in the universe who has no limits. And his desire is to give you everything. There is never a need that will not be fulfilled. There is never a desire that will not be satisfied. You are wealthy beyond your ability to imagine. And the God who promises it will never be false, will never fail. It is as secure as anything. And that is your condition. And Paul says, I pray that you would recognize this. When you get to chapter 3, he prays it again. He says, my prayer is that God, out of his glorious riches, there it is again, would give you the power so that you could know the height and width and depth and breadth of the love of Jesus that goes beyond our ability to know, that you would grasp it. And he says, when that happens, you will be full. You will be full in the way that God is full. If you can just grasp how much you are loved, if you can grasp just how full you are, you will be full. And that transforms us from feeling like we need to protect ourselves and hold on and, and feeling like we're never energetic enough, we never have enough, to believing that we are strong and sufficient and safe and full. As I've been thinking about this, I know some of you, and I'm really grateful for this, pray for your church leaders, and so I know you're praying for me. If you want to pray one thing for me, pray this, that I would grasp these things. Because so often I know I react out of anxiety, I react out of anger, because I'm still convinced that I need to protect myself, and I'm safe. If we want to pray for us as a church, pray that we would grasp just how deeply we are loved by Jesus, just how full we are. Because we re I realize so often in our life, it feels counterintuitive, and yet it is real. And it's as we grasp this that we learn to begin to overflow 
in kindness and love and generosity, bearing fruit for the world around us as we were called to do, as we were created to do. And, and, and the thing that's so encouraging to me is, as I think of this church, this is already taking place. So you might remember over the last two months we've been asking for help for one-to-one ministry as they are trying to bring people dignity by helping them get jobs. And we've been talking about this, this camp with Living Hope where we're trying to help kids get off the street and have something good for them for this summer. Our church has already given over $6,000 to this. This is a fruit of, of, of God giving us and we respond in generosity. I know many of you are giving up of your time on some Wednesday nights to help bring food to the homeless in Downers Grove. That is a fruit. Some of us, I know, have been working hard through training to to grow in our ability to listen to others and to speak to others about Jesus. That is the outworking of God at work in our hearts. God is doing this. He has created us in Christ Jesus for good works, and that is happening. And so... In the very final couple of minutes, I just want us to keep thinking. I want us to keep imagining as we are pursuing to start having a vision of what it looks like for us to be a church that is like an orchard with fruit, offering it to the world around us. In the very final verses of chapter 5 that we've quoted here, notice it actually gives us a description of the kind of fruit that God's church is meant to offer. It says, Walk as children of light... For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Another way of even translating that is this fruit is goodness and righteousness and truth. So one of the fruit that the church has to offer is goodness. Goodness is a big word. It's hard to even get our minds around. But with, with the, that idea has the ideas of, of love and beauty And those are two of the ways that we can show kindness to the world around us. One of the primary fruit that we have to offer is just the fruit of love. And by love, I'm not just saying like the big acts of doing something dramatic. When we pay attention to our neighbor and ask how they're doing, when we treat our coworker like someone who who is of significance, When we befriend people, that is a sign of the kingdom to come. That is part of the fruit, the fruit of just showing love. Or think of beauty. For some reason, oftentimes within certain Christian circles, art is seen as insignificant. Beauty is just seen as something, hey, this world's all burning. We shouldn't worry about beauty at all. That's not the way the Bible speaks. God is our creator. He is creative, and he has given us the ability to be creative. And as we seek to offer acts of beauty, whether it is our art, our music, whether it's just making our gardens look really nice, whether it's just a nicely written note to someone These gifts of beauty are a sign of the kingdom, and they are fruit, fruit of goodness. Or think of fruit of righteousness. Righteousness is an idea, it's kind of a repair idea. It's wherever things are broken, making things right. Proverbs speaks a lot about this gift of righteousness that that we have to offer. It speaks a lot about the righteous person, and and it's super practical. Righteousness means in the workplace bringing integrity And seeking to establish, to the degree that we have the ability, an atmosphere where people are treated with respect and dignity. Righteousness means for those of us who have resources, which is 
pretty much all of us, to use those resources to care for those who have need. Righteousness speaks of, as citizens, being concerned about justice for the oppressed. As the Proverbs writes, righteous cares about justice for the poor. That's Proverbs 29, verse 7. Righteousness is the pursuit of wholeness, of God's wholeness, wherever we find brokenness. And, and it is a gift. Righteousness might have this kind of cold idea, but it is a gift. Proverbs, again, writes that when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. Think about where God has placed you. Where do you see brokenness? Where can you work to make it right? That is part of the fruit of righteousness that we are called to offer. And then there's the fruit, the gift of truth, which honestly I think probably in our day doesn't feel like a gift. Truth seems to be devalued as if it doesn't even exist. Right now, people are less concerned about true than being concerned that you are on their side and agree with them. But we don't need to agree with one side or another. We don't need to be polarized between two different positions. What people need is reality. They need wisdom. And we are called as those who know the one who is truth himself to offer the gift of truth. Not, not the gift of super confident, certain I know everything, which is sometimes what we think, but that's not at all what the Bible speaks of, right? Because the Bible says part of truth is being truthful with ourselves, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, but instead realizing and being transparent that we are, are very flawed being vulnerable with others, openly acknowledging that we don't know everything and that we could be wrong. That's part of truth. But part of truth also is saying we might be wrong, but we know the one in whom truth is found. One of the great gifts we can have to offer to the world is sometimes seen as manipulation, it's sometimes seen as pressuring, but that's not what we're called to. We're not called to be those who convert. We're not called to be those who force people, but we are called to hold out the beautiful truth of Jesus. And say, here is the one in whom truth and all righteousness and all goodness is found. This is, is, is what we are called to be, a, a community that, that brings good things to the world around us. Sometimes the church has this reputation, I think, of being kind of like this, this fortress where we are trying to defend ourselves against the world. We put the walls up, and, and now we can be safe together as the world burns. But Scripture says that's not who we are. We are meant to be that bonfire that the world might gather around. We are meant to be an orchard that we invite the world into, that they might eat and enjoy fruit. That is God's vision for us when he says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And I invite us even now to, to turn to God in prayer and, and to pursue that with me. Where you find, as you think of yourself, this attitude of scarcity, I invite you to spend some time in confession of that. And take hold of the reality as you confess of the fact that that is not the truth for you if you place your faith in Christ. I'll lead us in prayer in a couple of minutes, but let's just spend a couple of minutes asking God for help and in prayer.